Hi everyone, this is Graham Cowan, and welcome to the Caring CEO Podcast. We created this podcast because we believe that every leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together. It is my job to interview CEOs and other senior leaders who value building both a culture of care and a culture of high performance. I'm very keen to understand how they do this, and I'm sure there'll be lots of insights and tips for anyone who wants to build a high-performing team. Today's guest is David Shane, who has a really inspiring story. After he arrived in Australia from South Africa at 26 years old, within eight months, he started his own business called Comtech, which was a technology and networking company. And over the next 14 years, he built it up to 1,400 employees. And when he sold it to Dimension Data, it was valued at over $1 billion. It was a real, uh, it was Australia's first unicorn. Funnily enough, after he finished with that company, he had a bit of a crisis for the next year because he didn't feel a real sense of purpose or wanting to spring out of bed each morning. And he regained that mojo when he became involved with the venture capital area and became a partner at OIF Ventures. And he really loved that role of mentoring CEOs and leadership teams to build a company that's likely to succeed. He truly believes in a culture of care, and that's providing care to customers, to employees, and to suppliers. His book was called The Dumbest Guy at the Table, and it was a bit tongue-in-cheek. But what he believed in was having real complementary strengths around the table. He was strong at sales and marketing, but he wanted people that were really strong in distribution and technology who could deliver great results to customers. He shares about the great lessons he learned from Jack Welsh, who was the CEO of GE at the time, and also some valuable insights from his wife's uncle. He's a real fan of Satya Nadella, the global CEO of Microsoft, and loves how when he took on that role, he embraced the great things about the organization, but also embedded a real sense of purpose and challenged employees to use Microsoft's technology to solve problems that they were passionate about. There's a real masterclass in building and striving for a culture of care and high performance. And uh, I think you'll, after listening to this, want to buy the new edition of uh, David's book, which is coming out in the end of August. Enjoy. It's a great pleasure to welcome David Shane to The Caring CEO. Welcome, David. Hi, how are you, Grant? Thanks so much for having me today. My pleasure. What does care in the workplace mean to you? So I think, Graham, I think it's, uh, yeah. I always say, you only know uh, how good your supplier is when the shit hits the fan. <laughs> and and I think it would be the same in the workplace. It's it's uh, when things aren't going well. What what are the processes in place in an organisation to really support people when the shit hits the fan for that person, either when it's work related or when it may be outside of a, a work environment? And it's uh, it's making sure that that you genuinely are there for the people in your organisation to support them. What was it like coming to Australia as a, a new immigrant? Look, I am, um, especially having come, returned from overseas uh, recently, uh, m- more so now than ever, I always, uh, there's two things that always come to mind when I, when I land in Australia. 
the first thing is the song they still call Australia home. <laughs> and the second, uh, which may show my age, I can't remember what year it was, but I'll never forget when Pakistan won the World Cup in uh, at the Melbourne Cricket Ground and uh, they got on got on the ground literally on their knees, hands and knees, face, neck and kissed the ground. <laughs> I, I always feel, I always want to kiss the ground when I land, uh, uh, return to Australia because I really do believe this is, yeah, the most unbelievable country and... Uh, and I'm very, very fortunate to live in this country, as I think we all are. I previously interviewed Pat Greer, who was the CEO of Ramsey Healthcare. I don't know if you've ever met Pat, but um, he arrived in Australia with, uh, you know, his wife and and uh, three children and, and uh, five suitcases. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he then built his life and you built your life in a remarkable way. Would you mind just letting that listeners know about, what happened in the first couple of years you were in Australia? As you said, I came from South Africa. I'm a chartered accountant by profession. I worked for Price Waterhouse in South Africa. Um, it was Price Waterhouse, not PwC in those days. They hadn't merged yet. And uh, I uh, was actually originally coming on a transfer with Price Waterhouse to Australia and then got a job um, before I arrived as the national sales manager of a of a computer software company. And I thought, how lucky am I as an article clock in South Africa? I'm landing in this new country and going to be national sales manager. And uh, I didn't realize that titles are actually meaningless if what you have to sell is not going to give you an opportunity to achieve your potential. And it probably turned out to be the luckiest break of my life because I, I think I learned most of the things about management from that first job. I was paid poorly. I had absolutely no job satisfaction and uh, I had no input. It was almost like my boss was, you know, leave your brain at the front door and you can pick it up on the way home. I, I was lucky enough to be earning $2,000 a month because the opportunity cost was that low that when I thought about starting my own company, I thought, how much do I have to sell just to be back to where I was in the, in the company where I had the job? And it wasn't, wasn't that much. And, uh, yeah, if I was on a market-related salary, I probably would never, ever have taken the risk. I was a new migrant. I had a wife with a, a young child. And uh, yeah, as I always tell the story, my mother, my mother-in-law pointed at me and said, you go get yourself a job like any normal South African. And <laughs> uh, two years later, she did say, why didn't you give me any shares? But, but I think that was my first couple of years was – one is having a job where I was extremely unhappy and uh, it wasn't because it was not my own company because when I worked at Pricewaterhouse, I loved my job. I loved, you know, I, I loved getting out of bed in the morning and going to work. I was, uh, I was engaged. I, I had a huge amount of respect for my boss. And when I took that, that job in Australia, I felt completely the opposite. And it was, it was a good lesson for me in terms of my own management style because you know, I'd never hired a person in my life, but I knew I knew what I didn't like, and if I were ever to hire someone uh, in my own business, I would make sure that they loved coming to work every day, that I that I paid them, um, you know, market related salaries, and I and I listened to their valuable ideas. Starting off, uh, you know, is is always a risk, and your mother in law saw that risk. But what do you think um, were the critical ingredients in those first couple of years to really? setting a platform for the future? 
You know, I know it sounds crazy, but I was 26 when I started my company. And I think being young and naive and stupid has lots and lots of benefits. <laughs> I, think, I think, you know, I'm in venture capital today. And if somebody came with my business plan and pitched the idea to me, I would have, I would have probably told them, given them the same advice that my mother-in-law gave me. So <laughs> I think, uh, I think being, being, as I say, young and naive, I, I, I was fearless and I was willing to take a risk. But I do believe, as I say, and I was lucky enough, I did live with my in-laws when we first arrived as new migrants. So I knew that, you know, that my wife and my son uh, always had a roof over their head and that there was going to be food on the table. And that, that yeah, so if I take that out, the risk that I was willing to take, um, I thought was a pretty low risk at the time. I was offered a job by one of my customers. Um, a guy, Gary Buttsworth, he offered me a job for $4,000 a month, which was double what I was earning. And I said to Gary, um, the only reason I'm not taking the job is I've always wanted to try something on my own. And if it doesn't work out, um, I won't be too proud to come back and see you. And I hope you won't be too proud to give me the job. And uh, fortunately, I never had to go and see Gary. But that also, I think, reduced my risk knowing that I had a bit of a a safety blanket, knowing that if it didn't work out, I would go back to Gary and say, I'd love to come and join Logical Solutions. When did you decide to hire a first employee? How long after the start? Uh, it was, so I started in June 87, and the stock market crashed in, in October 87. And uh, by the way, it was a very, very good time to, to start a company. And I think uh, yeah, it's, it's advice that I'd give any anyone looking to start a company in today's market where where you know the stock markets have have pretty much crashed you know similar to dot com or nineteen eighty seven that I think my the advantage that I had was that unbelievably low overheads whereas our competitors had pretty high overheads and never made the change that they needed and um, to 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 change their business to meet the the, the changes in financial circumstances of the economy. And uh, so the first person I hired was a technical guy. I'm not a, as I said, I'm an accountant by profession. I think in any organization, you, you, you need three kinds of people. You need salespeople, you need admin people, and you need technical people. And that's not just in a technical company, which I was in. You know, if you're running a, a restaurant, you need, you need someone in the kitchen He's the technical person, or she's the technical person, the chef, and then you have the front of house people uh, who are serving and, and, and managing customer expectations. The same, yeah. You know, if you're working in a, for a newspaper, the technical people, your journalists. So in my business, I, I it was a very technical industry. It was networking, communications, right at the outset of of um, of, of that uh, era, and uh, I needed somebody to complement my sales and admin skills. I could do the books if I had to. And uh, I thought I was a pretty decent salesperson. So the first person I ever hired was a, a technical person, a guy by the name of Nathan Sher, which was six months after I started. Right, right. And uh, you had enough cash flow then to hire him or did you have to borrow money to? Uh... I, uh, luckily enough, being a distributor, I didn't create my own IP. I was selling somewhere else's IP. I always say, and I'm not embarrassed to say, I always say, I write on the coattails of successful companies. And uh, so as as long as I could sell a product that I was was buying uh, 
and collecting the money faster than I needed to pay for it. I was was cash flow positive. But I did say to Nathan, it's a startup. There's risk involved, and uh, he was willing to take the risk. And uh, and uh, and I think fortunately it worked out really, really well for both of us. And uh, Comtech, which you found it turned out to be incredibly successful, you know, grew from just a personal one up until around about fourteen hundred people. Is that uh, is that right? That's correct. Uh, it was got way bigger after I left, but um, at the time I left, um, there were fourteen hundred people. Uh, we had offices in all the states of Australia as well as in New Zealand as well. So, And how did you go about creating the right culture in the organisation? What were the real fundamentals you tried to embed right from the start? So the, cult- the culture was, you know, I think the most important thing about culture is authenticity. It's, it's actually doing what you say. You know, there's nothing worse than, than, uh, than uh, you know, I've never ever heard a CEO say, "Yeah, our number one asset is our furniture and fittings, and number two is computer equipment, number three is motor vehicles, and number four of our people." Yeah, it's it's. I think from the day I started, I, I I really wanted to build a culture where where we were absolutely renowned for customer success and customer satisfaction. And when I did hire people, I always wanted to make sure that the things I hated about that first job I had in Australia were not going to be repeated in my own company. And if you say you're going to genuinely take care of your customers and your staff, you really have to because I think there's there's the, the fastest way for any CEO to lose credibility is by not walking the talk. Mm-hmm. That, that yeah, I know, you know lots of startups today, lots of companies today, I think often think that culture may be yeah, that you you do yoga twice a week at work, or they bring a masseur in, or you you have beer on tap. Those are all value adds. Those are all nice to have. Mm-hmm. The the key thing that counts is how you is do your do your words, your actions match your words. Yeah, Walk, you know, walking the talk just counts for everything, doesn't it? You know, people can have policies and procedures, but it's what people actually do that makes exactly. a difference. And, uh, you know, I was formerly involved in recruitment and the headhunter. And so often you'd go into an organisation that had the values up on the wall, but then you'd have someone from that same organisation coming in next week and just saying it's rubbish. You know, we don't really walk the talk. So setting an example as a CEO is a really important element. How do you, what, what do you add to that to keep it growing as the business grows? Well, I think you, you've got to, you know, as a business grows to the size that, that we had, is you have to make sure that, you know, one person, yeah, I think that culture starts at the top, but it then filters through every level of an organization. So it could be through a different department or it could be through a different, to, through a different branch. And I always say, you know, we had different branch managers, you know, right across the country. And uh, I never, ever would have expected Steve Nola, who ran our Melbourne office, who then went on to, to run the company uh, after I left, probably far more successfully. Uh, and Alan Bradshaw, who ran our Perth office, as an example, never, ever did I tell Steve he has to be like Alan or Alan that he has to be like Steve. Everyone, everyone needs to be an individual. But there were some unbreakable core values in our organisation. That was, what do our customers in Perth think about us? What do our staff in Perth think about us? What do our staff think about us in Melbourne, and what do our staff think about us in in uh, in in Melbourne? 
And as long as those those core values were maintained, yeah, it's almost like if you went and took the sun and the moon. The sun is unbelievably rigid. It never, ever moves. Those are an organization or a family's core values. You know, we, you know, much if you have kids, Graham, I have three kids. They honestly completely different. Yeah. Um, I call them low maintenance, high maintenance, and very high maintenance. <laughs> However, they, they all have core values that are, yeah, absolutely unbreakable in our family. And then they're their own unique individuals. And I think that's the same in an organization that you have to absolutely be absolutely rigid on those core values and then understand that people, people are individuals and you need to give them that flexibility like the moon. The sun is rigid, but the moon revolves around the sun. And, uh, and I think it's the same in an organization. How do you handle a situation either in the past or now where someone that works for you disappoints you, you know, don't, doesn't um, live up to your expectations? How do you manage that discussion? So it's, uh, yeah, there's lots of ways to disappoint. There's uh, those that are fixable and those that are, yeah, are, are, are non-fixable. It's, yeah, sexual harassment, for example, is something that should never, ever be tolerated as an example. And that's, yeah, where somebody who may miss their sales target or who didn't respond to a customer quickly is disappointing, but, but it's, but it potentially can be fixed. So I really always think that people fit in, in four, in four categories. And, uh, and so if you take a, if you take a square divided into four quadrants on the one axis, you put, uh, values on the, on the, on the y axis, put objectives. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, you know, the, the bottom left axis doesn't share the values of the company and nor do they meet objectives. Mm. The top right shares the objectives, uh, uh, sorry, meets objectives and shares the values of the organization. Those are the two easiest groups of people to deal with. Yeah, you know, the, 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 the bottom left, get rid of that person as quickly as possible. The top right is make sure that that person never ever leaves the organization. Mm. Yeah. You know, the, the second hardest person to deal with is someone who's absolute team player, unbelievable person. Everybody loves that person, but they miss they miss their sales targets. They're not getting back to customers. They don't have the technical expertise. You, you know, we spoke about BlackBerry earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's somebody who was the best BlackBerry engineer. We didn't re-engineer their skills to become iPhone. Yeah, iPhone engineers or Android engineers has, is going to become obsolete. And uh, yeah, usually that person you give a, a second chance. You want to give that person how do we how do we educate this team player to become a star performer? Mm. And the worst or the toughest person to deal with is someone who meets the objectives but doesn't share the values of an organization. Mm. And and in my experience, you, you have to get rid of those people. That 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 yeah, it's somebody who may be your top sales performer. But who pisses everyone off, everyone else off in the company, or a technical person who thinks you know, knowledge is power, so I'm not going to share that knowledge, yeah, across the the organisation. So, you know, uh, the the best term I've heard for that person is, I think, it was coined by uh, um, Ariana Huffington, um, Huffington, and uh, uh, and she she called it a call that person a brilliant jerk, mm. and uh, and. And I think, yeah, 
she was on the board of Uber when Uber was renowned for having an absolute toxic culture. And yeah. she said, we have to get rid of our brilliant jerks. Yeah. And, and they did. And uh, so I think the biggest challenge that a manager has is that when you are disappointed, to understand in which quadrant does that person fit and then to make changes as quickly as possible. And, yeah, especially uh, being a caring leader and leading with care, which I say I was, a, or I'd like to think I still am a CEO who, 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 who walks by those, uh, those words. I think my, my problem was I always say be fair first and tough second. And I, I think if I have a failure, I, I've been too fair for too long. And, uh, and I, I often advise young managers to make the changes when you know something's not right, make the change as quickly as possible. Yeah, I, I, I read um, two things that speak to that. One was your belief is it's so important to embrace reality, what it really is, not what it should be, and then to change before you need to change. Yeah. How, how do you make that happen week to week as a, as a CEO? Yeah, I think that's critical. And I think probably the best way to, to you know, I'm in venture capital today. And, uh, and uh, yeah, so if you were the founder of a startup six months ago and you were a half-decent founder with a half-decent idea, raising capital is unbelievably easy. Mm. Yeah, six months later, yeah. So if you asked me six months ago, David, what is the biggest challenge a founder has today? I would say in my career, uh, I've never, ever seen it more challenging to attract and retain good people. Mm. Six months later, I, I will never walk away from saying that's not important for any founder, even in, in you know, even if unemployment rates were 12%, being a caring leader, you should always take care of your staff. But the biggest challenge that a founder has today is Trying to raise funding today is unbelievably uh, challenging. Mm. So if you were a founder uh, six months ago and you said, all is what I need to do to get to my next round of funding is just make sure that I keep growing the business, that my revenue is growing, I'm opening new marketplaces, and I know I'll get funding. Today, it's how do you preserve your cash? What, 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 what steps do you need to take to make sure that you preserve your runway as long as possible to give your organization the, the best chance of surviving. And I had a young founder come and see me the other day and uh, he has faced reality. He's got a really nice business but wanted to extend his runway. And the only way you can extend your runway is either by generate more sales, you either raise more capital or you reduce your costs, which which often is, is unfortunately, you know, getting rid of people. Yeah. And, uh, and he said, Dave, I don't know what I'm going to do. I've got to go and present to the, the rest of my team. Uh, you know, we've laid off eight people and I'm not sure, yeah, I'm not sure what message to give. And I said to him, what you've got to do is you've got to let the 55 people that are still in the company know that the toughest decision that you made in your life, which is asking people to leave your company, mm. is because of the care you have for the 55 people that are still in the company. You want to make sure you give them the best chance of working for a company that's going to be around in the future. Mm. And, uh, and, some, and, and, and I think the leaders that can adapt to changes really quickly 
And I think we've seen the last couple of years, whether it's going from a COVID pandemic where everybody thought, yeah, unemployment, are, yeah, I remember on March the 23rd, when you saw uh, in 2020, where you saw queues of people standing outside Centrelink. Honestly, in my mind, I, uh, I honestly had um, the, the 1929 depression in my, in, in, in my mind. And only a few months later, it was absolute boom times for some of the companies that people thought were going to be going out of business. Yeah. Uh, you have companies like Afterpay that, yeah, from a share price point of view, went from $8 up to, you know, at its peak, $160. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, founders had to say, what am I going to do? Never dealt with the pandemic. And the next minute, yeah, uh, yeah, what am I actually going to do to keep this business going? The next was, oh my God, I never realized I'd be, I'd need to be hiring and hiring, et cetera. So you have to be unbelievably nimble and quick on your feet and make the changes as quickly as possible. And that's, and that's going to, yeah, that's going to be the difference between, you know, you know, good companies or great companies or ones that disappear. So you built Comtech up to this 1,400 uh, people, very, very successful. Why did you decide to sell it then or to, to re- reduce your equity? So as you would know from my book, Ian Chappell, who was, in my opinion, one of the greatest, uh, if not the greatest Australian cricket captain, I was lucky enough to have met Ian in 1966 uh, when he played cricket. I was six years old. I think Ian was 23 when he played um he played cricket against South Africa, and uh, he's trying to re- he's trying to forget that series. I I, I remember it absolutely so clearly, <laughs> and only because um, I think I only took one wicket in my whole life, and that was bowling Ian Chapel out in my back garden. <laughs> <laughs> but so, but um, I'll never forget um, one of our managers. We had a meeting, and one of our managers said uh, asked Ian the question. He said. Ian, how do you know when you've reached your use-by date? And I'll never forget what Ian said. Ian said, um, um, in 1975, Australia were going to tour the West Indies. And he said, I personally did not feel mentally tough enough to lead a team on a really grueling and challenging tour to the West Indies. And I thought it was time for me to step down. And, and I think I felt the same. You know, we've been going for 14 years, uh, yeah, especially the last four years had taken a massive toll. We had added a new line of business and had grown from 240 people and growing from one person to 240 people over nine years was, was really manageable growth. Mm. We then grew from about 240 people to 1,400. It was probably 240 to 1,000 people uh, in one year and then we added another 400 people over the next couple of years. I found it extremely challenging and I, I, I think I felt at the time not mentally tough enough to take the business to the next level. And, uh, but with hindsight, um, I probably could have taken a sabbatical and uh, maybe taken three months off and come back and, uh, and kept going. But I just at the time, uh, maybe because I was the first time uh, CEO and I'd never run a company before, I always felt that if I left, yeah, if I left, I always said if I had toothache on, on, on Monday, I'd go to the dentist on Saturday. I, I always had this thing that if I left the office early, people would think I'd lost, I'd lost interest in the company. I was completely wrong. No one would have given a damn. So I think 
at the time, I just thought it was really opportune. It was also yeah, at the peak of the dot-com boom. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yeah, so the, the opportunity was really, really um, compelling uh, from a financial perspective as well as from a um, just from a mentally prepared to take the company through the next 10 years. I just didn't feel I was tough enough to do it. And how did it feel when you did that deal? Obviously, you know, you were able to take out a lot of money. How did that feel for you? You know, Graham, it's, uh, I don't want to sound arrogant. It was more money than I ever dreamt I'd make in my entire life. But it, it was almost like an anti, it's hard to explain, like an anti-climax. It's almost like you've you've got to the top of Mount Everest and uh and, uh, you know, so I'd honestly say the year after I left the company, having money in the bank, having, you know, financial security was probably the worst year of my entire life. It was uh, debilitating going from being the CEO of a company that was, you know, that, that had been growing unbelievably well for 14 years, having, you know, having something to do every day to to wake up, waking up in the morning and absolutely having no purpose. Mm. And, and I would really say that if uh, it would be, have been the closest to being depressed that I've ever become by by just not having that sense of purpose. So I think financial security is really, really important. You know, anybody who says, you know, that it's, you know, as, as you know, I've, I've been away and it's, uh, and it's fantastic to be able to say, if we go overseas, what are we going to have to cut back on? And uh, but it's not everything. It's absolutely not everything. And, and you know, knowing that you've got got funding to send your kids to private schools, and you can still take an annual holiday, you can still pay the mortgage. That is, it's a that's why you start your own company. And what what you know what I would you know what I suggest often to any founder, if you can take some chips off the table to give your family financial security, just just do it. You know because it's. It, it's it's one less thing you have to worry, one less pressure that you have to worry about. But it doesn't mean that that for the rest of your days your life is uh, is fantastic because uh, because you've got money in the bank. If you believe like we do that a leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together, you may be interested in these three free resources we've provided at our website, Factor C. The first one is the We Care Credo poster, and this contains the mindset and values of teams that prize self-care, crew care, and red zone care. The second resource is a poster called How to Support a Teammate in Distress, and this provides easy-to-follow instructions on how to identify someone who's struggling, how to have the Are You OK conversation with empathy, and how to guide them to the help that they need. And the third resource is a Building a Mentally Healthy Culture checklist. And this provides items to think about before you launch an initiative, how you do a great launch, and then thirdly, how to keep the momentum going following the launch. These three free resources can be found at factorc.com.au. It's really interesting. Um, two interviews ago, I interviewed uh, Derek Borian, and he built up a very, very successful 
human resource rehabilitation organization, build that from one up to, you know, it's now up, I think, to 700 people. And um, when he sold a large part of his uh, equity, he said exactly the same thing that you said, that, uh, you know, it was like this euphoria, the thing that had driven him for, you know, five years to getting this over the line, but it was a very, very tough, I think he said six months, he was still involved in the business, but uh, it's interesting that, isn't it? You know, it, it just goes to show how important a sense of purpose is Absolutely. in our lives. It really is. And, uh, you know, I've read research that says that the younger you retire, the younger you die. <laughs> it's actually been shown from an actuarial point of view to be true. And I'm sure that really relates to having a purpose, getting up out of bed each day. Yeah. Well, I, I know I do mention in my book, and it was words from my, it's actually my wife's uncle, but it was one of the nicest human beings I've ever met. And I was like, sometimes claiming him as my, my uncle. And, uh, and uh, they're probably not his words, but he once said to me, Dave, if you want to be happy in life, you need three things. You need something to do, some someone to love, and something to look forward to. Mm. And, and I really believe that that's what happiness is really, really about. It's those, it's those simple things. Um, yeah, it's uh, holidays are um, are fun because if you work for a year and then or for night for eleven months and you take three or four weeks off on a holiday, that's why that's why it's a holiday. If you didn't if you didn't have a purpose. The holiday wouldn't be as meaningful as it as it, it actually is or should be. You were credited with uh, building Australia's first unicorn. You know, a very, very, very successful company, and yet you brought out your book called "The Dumbest Guy at the Table." Why did you choose that uh, that title? Whenever I sit at a table, any table, even a virtual one, grabs. I'll say our one as well. I, I always, I always think. Just, I've got the lowest IQ at this table. And uh, so when it came to finding a name for, for my book, I've, I've said that so many times I've used that, that I've got the lowest IQ at the table. I thought, uh, I thought it would be a good name for the, for the book. And, uh, and uh, I'll just show your audience. This is, the, this is the, uh, the new, the second release, which should be available in August or September. And... Uh, and uh, which has two additional chapters to the original ground. I just thought it was a, a name that I really personally it resonates with me personally, even though I do say it's tongue in cheek because there's obviously some areas that I'm pretty good at, uh, and uh, but most areas I'm not good at. And I think probably the smartest thing I ever did was, you know, as a very young uh, CEO or founder. Uh, you know, if I go back to saying there's three key parts to a company, sales, admin, and tech, and I, I realized that no matter how many technical training courses I ever went on, I'd never, ever be able to install and support a network. I knew if I had to do the books as an accountant, I could, but I didn't want to do it. And what I really wanted to do was I wanted to be involved in sales and marketing. I decided I was going to surround myself with people in those areas that I would never, ever be able to do myself and those areas that I may be able to do that I don't want to do so that I could focus on what I, I was good at. And uh, and uh, and I think, uh, yeah, in, in our company, we had unbelievably smart and talented people. Uh, I think you know Gerard Florian really well. Yep. Yeah, Gerard would have been one of them and uh, one of 
many of them. And uh, you know, if you look at what Gerard's achieved today as the chief, you know, chief technical officer of ANZ Bank, uh, you know, that's something that makes me unbelievably proud as a founder um, to see people achieve things that we never believed we were possible of achieving, but as a team together, we were able to achieve that. What are the uh, really important elements of running a weekly meeting as a CEO or as a team manager? What do you think are the essential components of that? Well, I think the key thing is, is uh, you know, they say God gave you one mouth and two ears for a good purpose. You can do twice as much listening as you do talking. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really making sure that you give the management team the opportunity to express, you know, both good things and bad things, and 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 then your job as the CEO is to is to you know, evaluate all the all the ideas or all the concerns and uh, you know, and and act on them. Or and yeah, and, and act on them may not necessarily be just by yourself, but making sure that that they're allocated to people who will solve those problems. And then uh, so yeah, I think it's making sure that people around the table genuinely feel that they have a have a voice and that they're an, an integral part of the decision-making process of the company that is not just left to a CEO. Um, I mean, I, I hate it when people say, um, you know, the board, this or the board, that. Yeah, to me, by the way, that's one of the chapters in my book is, do you have a board of directors or are you board of directors? <laughs> yeah, in, in my opinion, that the, the absolute fundamental requirement of a board, and this is really my perspective, is to find the right CEO. You know, if a board's got to set the strategy uh, and hand that out to a CEO, you, you've got the wrong CEO. So, yeah, the, the board should be there to review a strategy set by the CEO and the management team to question it, to then potentially tweak it, but then say what support does the management team I need from from the board to help achieve what they what they set out to do. So yeah, I think as I said, I think from a CEO's perspective, it's obviously having a vision for where the whole company wants to go, but then understanding that you have a management team who you want to have yeah a better vision for. You know, we, we had a if I go and say, we we're a very big distribution company. Yeah, we and uh, yeah, so I had an overall vision of saying. I just want to know that if somebody places an order with us at uh, at you know, 6 p.m. on a Monday evening, that on Tuesday morning, with 99.9% certainty, they get the right del- the right goods delivered to their to their warehouse, no matter whether they're in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Perth, or Adelaide. That was my vision. Mm. How we execute on that was why I hired. Uh, a, 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 a distribution manager. I, if I had to tell that manager, you have to use um, uh, TNT for you know for our, our courier service, or you have to use these systems. I, I I've hired the wrong person. As mm-hmm. I said, I you want someone who's who's not going to leave their brain on the front door and pick it up at the way home. You want someone. So the reason I'm using this courier company is because. Of the following reasons, the reason I'm using you know, RFID and not Bluetooth is because of these reasons, and that's uh, so. As I say, yeah, the CEO uh, should always have that, those core values: how you treat your customers, how you treat your staff and your business partners, 
and then rely on experts to run their part of the company. Yeah. And I also saw, you know, as part of your review of, um, you know, prospects to invest in, you're looking for a leader, not a manager running the business. How do you tell, you know, whether someone is a leader or a manager? Because people can talk the talk but might not necessarily walk the walk. How do you how do you how do you find out? How do you have that reality check? So, you know, one of the few things I'm good at is I'm a bit of a I'm a gut feel person. So, you know, you have to, in, in, in our industry, you have to make some, you know, you can never, ever be in any business decision, you can never, ever be 100, 100% certain. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I remember reading, uh, I think it was uh, Lee Iacocca's book. Lee Iacocca was a you know, renowned uh, car uh, manufacturer, CEO, and uh, took over at Chrysler when they were going broke. He said, I never hired an MBA because they're always trying to be 100% certain of the facts. Mm. And by the time they've got all their, their, their information and the data and whatever, by the time they want to make a decision, the opportunity is gone. Mm. So, yeah, it's the same in venture capital. We have to assess a founder. And really what we're looking for is someone who can roll their sleeves up and know that they've got to get into the weeds if they, you know, the best advice I always give to you, especially sales-orientated founders, is that they should be out there winning those first few anchor customers. You know, if they can't sell it, nobody's going to be able to sell it. And once they've got those first five or ten customers or reference sites, um, you know, they they will find it much easier to attract other good salespeople to an organization. You know, when you're hiring it, yeah, you know, it's, it's a, a technical uh, founder, you want to make sure that the technical founder is 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 on the tools and doing your know, writing code themselves. And as the company grows, then obviously your roles, you know, roles change. And uh, yeah, I was the salesperson at Comtech. And uh, I, I think I'd hired six technical people before I hired my next salesperson. Mm-hmm. And uh, but by that stage we had lots and lots of customers and it was much, much easier for that salesperson to come on board. And uh, as I said, it's a bit of a gut feel decision that you make, but it's also setting those expectations out at the beginning saying, yeah, until the company grows, especially in today's environment where, as I said, cash is king, that founders are, are, are rolling their sleeves up and, uh, and and keeping their costs down by not saying, I'm going to hire five salespeople and I'll be a sales manager. It's, I'm actually going to go and win those first few anchor tenants. You mentioned previously about good advice from Ian Chappell, your your wife's uncle, and you mentioned Leah Cocker. What other people or books have really influenced the way that um, you operate? My dad um, always used to tell me I haven't done badly for a bloke who read two books in his life. So, <laughs> <laughs> but but probably in my day, the most the most influential leader for me would have been uh, would have been uh, Jack Welch, who was the yeah, the CEO of GE for yeah, probably about 20 years. Mm. And uh, so when you spoke about face reality as it is, not as it was, or you wish it to be, and change before you have to, I would love to take credit for those incredible, an incredible bit of advice. But it's it, it came from Jack Welsh. Um, I read a book many, many years ago. Uh, it was called Control Your Own Destiny or Someone Else Will. And, uh, and he had six rules for success, of which those were two of them, and uh, and you actually alluded to another one, uh, 
in, in those six rules, face reality as it is, not as it was, as you wish it to be. Yeah, if you think about it today, um, you know, the, the, the more current way of saying this is that you, you, you better um, watch what's happening in the marketplace or you may get disrupted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So two is change before you have to. You know, today's startups or founders talk about, I had to pivot my business. And uh, you know, three, and, and what's your exact on the audience, lead, don't manage. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, four is if you don't have a competitive advantage, don't compete. And you know, five was be honest with everyone. So you spoke about you know, what is important about leadership. And in my opinion, you know, be honest. Yeah, be open and honest. And even if it's even if it's uh, if it's a uh, you know, a tough a tough decision, that you know, it's for example, someone who you know may get retrenched in the next. Yeah, it's it's no use saying to that person, yeah, Graham, I'm really happy. You've got nothing to worry about. Yeah, everything's great. And uh, you get a call from the HR department the next day saying, Graham, just need to let you know, unfortunately, you you're being laid off or you've been made redundant. Rather, you know, I know that Jack Welsh, as an example, used to say, um, by the way, rule number six was control your own destiny if someone else will. And he said you control your own destiny when you have a highly energized team of people, anything is possible. And honestly, I absolutely believe that with, with Comtech, we we controlled our own destiny because we had a highly energized team of people. And, and I think, as I say, I'm not saying this as, as the founder, I think if you spoke to our customers, if you, if you spoke to our staff, I think people will say Dave's not believing his own bullshit. We could do absolutely anything, or they did do absolutely anything. And uh, and yeah, I think with good leadership, I think you would have seen what Microsoft did uh, when you know when Sachin Adela came in. Yeah, literally with the same with the same people with the same products that Steve Ballmer had. He literally turned that massive organization on a dime. So it doesn't need just be in a small company. It can be in a massive company like a Microsoft. So uh, yeah, so I think I think that's important. But I was just saying, so Jack Welsh had uh you always say you have to be number one or number two in every market that we operate in, or I'm going to close you down, sell you off. Or do something that's going to make yourself number one and number two. So, if a if a manager who was in an industry or company in the GE portfolio was number six in the in the in the market, and a manager came and said, "Jack, how do you think I'm going?" He wouldn't say, "You're going great." He'd say, "Graham, I think you better get your CV up to date because <laughs> you know that I'm going to close you down or sell you off." So, uh, and I think it's better to be open and honest, and that's. That is a culture. To me, that's a, a caring culture. We actually open and honest, with, whether it's with good news or bad news, and and uh, as opposed to saying one thing and doing another. It's been an absolute pleasure catching up today, David. Just a couple of other questions I'd like to um, finish on, and and I guess the first thing is, what is there a message that you had the chance you could share with the world? What would it be? So, so my message would be. I think fairly simple. If you um, if you want to be a caring leader, a caring leader is someone who, as I say, who genuinely cares about their customers and their suppliers and their and their and their staff, which would be unbelievably easy if you didn't have this 
juggling ball, on the other hand, called cash flow and profitability. Mm. That, that you know, if, as an example, if uh, standard leaving in, a, in Australia is four weeks, but you say to your team, it's actually a pretty stressful industry, don't take four weeks, we'll give you eight weeks. And your market-related salaries are $60,000, we're going to pay $90,000. You'd be an amazing company to work for for a very short period of time. Mm. Okay. Mm. So good leadership is going to say, how do we deliver absolute legendary customer service? How do we ensure unbelievably high levels of staff satisfaction and at the same time, make a buck at the same time. So I think, you know, like I know a lot of the things that we did for our staff, we were only able to do because we were a successful company. We were able to invest in our people. We were able to invest in our infrastructure. We were able to provide the care and well-being programs that we were able to provide because we were a profitable and successful company. So I really believe that being a caring company and a high-performance company are absolutely interrelated, interrelated, they're not mutually exclusive. That, you, you know, we spoke about because you went on uh, uh, exchange to, to Canada for a year and you spoke about BlackBerry in Waterloo. It would have been very tough for BlackBerry when they were, when they were dying to be able to invest in their people and invest in the infrastructure and provide the resources that are needed for a caring organisation. How you deal with a successful company, how you share the success of a company is what a caring CEO is about. So there are lots of, you know, in, in our generation, you've seen some unbelievably successful leaders, you know, whether it's Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff, Jeff Bezos, um, Elon Musk, Steve Jobs, the two leaders that I absolutely would aspire to be like, in my opinion, Bob Iger from Disney. And I can absolutely highly recommend a book called The Ride of a Lifetime and, uh, and Sachin Adela. And I really believe that they have built in Disney and in Microsoft two absolute iconic organizations that, you know, that they've both built the platform. And I think in our, you know, today, I'll say at least for the next five years of unbelievably successful companies, highly profitable, highly successful but unbelievably empathetic leaders. And those are, the, those are the kinds of leaders that I, I aspire to and who I would like to emulate. It is uh, quite extraordinary about Microsoft, isn't it? And, <clears throat> and I've seen, you know, the when he was awarded that role, Satya Nadella, the speech he gave to the Microsoft team, and it was all about, all about purpose, using, uh, you know, our our technology to solve world problems. And he had his own personal example with children that had learning difficulties. But I've also interviewed interviewed on this uh, program two people that worked at Microsoft and that were there, you know, before and then afterwards. And they basically said that the organisation completely changed in six months, even out here in Australia. I think that is just extraordinary, isn't it, that, um, you know, if you can tap into a compelling vision and a real purpose, it it excites people. Yeah, and it's interesting when you you talk about Sachin Adela, I was lucky enough to hear him uh, in Australia and I was invited by Microsoft to to a small lunch that um, was hosted by um, by the, the Fin Review. And uh, I would have said, if I hadn't heard that speech, I would have 
use these words, I always say, with the same crappy products and the same lousy people, he turned that company on its ear. And then I heard Sachin Adela talk and he said, how lucky was I That's, that Steve Barmer left me with this amazing organization, these amazing people and products. And I thought, wow, if he, and I just thought his humility and, uh, and, and just being humble saying, look, look what I was given by the previous CEO um, and you know, to build on and create. And uh, yeah, as I say, so, and I think, I think the proof's in the pudding, you know, He's probably been in the job for probably four or five years. And uh, yeah, today, a company that, in my opinion, it was on its way to irrelevance. Mm. Uh, you know, there's lots of companies that are relevant. Pick on BlackBerry. I think BlackBerry still exists today, <laughs> but, but is irrelevant. You know, BlackBerry literally died. Nobody uh, on, this, on, this, uh, on this webinar would say, oh, my God, what am I going to do? You know, a company that's relevant, if, if uh, Apple went down, with, oh my God, how am I going to catch an Uber? How am I going to pay a bill? How am I going to do whatever? <laughs> so, yeah, I think Microsoft would have existed for many years, but I don't know how relevant they would have been. I think in the five years, you know, not only has, has, uh, has it turned that company on its ear, but it's going to be absolutely unbelievably relevant for the next you know, five and probably more uh, years. Fantastic. And uh, final question, David. If uh, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give to you know your twenty-year-old self just after you come out of a chartered accounting at uh, at uni? What advice would you give that person, knowing what you know now? Well, I think I'd definitely say have a go, back yourself, and uh, anything's possible with the right you know with the right attitude. And obviously having some ability, and uh, yeah, I think uh, yeah, there's a great quote that said it's your it's your attitude, not your aptitude, that will determine your altitude. And I, I really believe lots of people don't uh, don't back themselves because they fear failure. And uh, and I I, I think uh, yeah, never fear failure. And uh, if you think you've got a shot, have a go. You don't want to die wondering. Yeah, fantastic advice. It's been an absolute pleasure uh, catching up, David. And um, just for our listeners, uh, so David, an updated version of David's book, The Dumbest Guy at the Table, how how he built uh, Australia's first unicorn and more. Really recommend that. And it's coming out is it the end of, end of August? I think the end of August and, uh, yeah, it will be available, uh, unlike the first version, which was only available on Amazon, will be available and by the way, I should say Amazon were unbelievably supportive. They didn't charge 100% of the proceeds of the book were donated to the Black Dog Institute and, and Amazon did all the distribution for free. Uh, in the second, this is actually, I have a publisher today and uh, 100% of my royalties will continue to go to the Black Dog, um, but um, it will then be generally available through, you know, in addition to Amazon through other bookstores as well. You maybe maybe want to ask one more question. <laughs> I know that it it went there because you had a a very good friend who really struggled with with mental illness. What was it like being a friend of someone like that? You know, Graham, it's actually crazy because I never knew that he struggled. I'd heard that he struggled, and he worked in our company for about ten years. Everybody loved him. The quality of his work was absolutely incredible. 
And uh, he was, yeah, he was definitely someone who fitted in that top quadrant, met his objectives and shared the values of the organization. And uh, yeah, from time to time, people may have said to me, does Dan's depression ever impact? And I, I said, mate, I don't even know. I didn't even know he suffered from depression. And uh, he was also a really good athlete. He, he uh, did Ironman triathlon. And uh, unfortunately, Dan left. Uh, he had an American wife and they left to go and live in Chicago where his wife was from. When they had kids, I think the deal was, as soon as we have kids, we'll go back to, to the U.S., I think that part of Dan's medication was his his training that I really believe, you know, I often hear people saying they want to lose weight, they're going to exercise. My my thing is you want to you want to lose weight, stop eating so much. Mm-hmm. Like I would, I would, I really sincerely believe that that exercise is better for your head than your body and I I believe that Dan's training was part of his medication was all the training that he that he did. And uh, unfortunately, what I didn't know right until the last day prior to Dan, unfortunately, passing away, was he had been on lithium. And Dan used to sit with a a jug of water on his desk every day. And I just assumed it was just to keep hydrated because of all the training he was doing for his Ironman. And uh, I think the lithium was affecting his his kidneys. And uh, he was taken off the medication in the US and... uh, and believe it or not, not put onto an alternative medication. Uh, and, and I think, unfortunately, that's what led to his, uh, to his untimely death in the, and, you know, so to go right back to the beginning that, and you asked me, what did it feel like being in Australia? I, I really sincerely believe as much as people complain, I always think, and you know, I, I've had aged parents, I've got my own kids. I've been in the hospital system. I really always say, if you're going to be in trouble, you, you, there, there's only one country in the world where you really want to, where you're going to be in trouble, and that's Australia. And I think, I often think, uh, yeah, I really do believe that if Dan had still been in Australia, I, I, I think, I think he still would have been with us today. Thanks for sharing that really personal story, and it's another great reason to for everyone to go out and get the uh, dumbest guy at the table. Wonderful speaking to you, David. Thank for your um, generosity and your, your advice and your reflections. It's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much for having me, Graham. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. I hope you've learned something new and heard some practical tips you can try with your team. If you enjoyed this interview today, please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate us, it helps other people to find us. We also welcome any comments. If you're interested in seeing details about our scalable WeCare mental health training programs, please visit us at factorc.com.au. Our goal for these programs is to make them accessible, practical, and ongoing. If you've been impressed by a CEO that you would like us to interview, please email details to support at factorc.com.au. Thanks for joining us.